How do we play this topsy-turvy fantasy season? We'll ask Steve Gardner, the fantasy editor at USA Today and usatoday.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hello, babe. I'm Lou Gehrig. Listen, Lou, how did you get the stocking home run? It was like this. I watched you and read how much money you were getting, and I got to thinking. Thinking? With what? First. Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Don. Hey, Don. Tell Murray about the time you won the game when you slid into home play. Oh, Jack, I'd rather not. I'm embarrassed. I don't blame you. <laughs> tell me, did they ever find that catcher? <laughs> Those pitchers try to hit you. You play baseball and you got to stay in there because the guy throws a curveball at you. It may break across the plate. And your mind says, stay in there. But your body says, Let's, we got to move. <laughs> baseball is played on a diamond in a park. The baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium. War Memorial Stadium. In baseball, you wear a cap. In football, you wear a helmet. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of May 19th and show number 18 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Steve Gardner, the fantasy editor at USA Today and usatoday.com, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, which we think is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about how to profit from reliability more than potential during the season. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Toronto right-handed pitching prospect Noah Sindergaard, and in his Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about how skills and experience and other things are driving today's bullpen volatility. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Derek Lowe is leading his league in ERA. We gotta talk some baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Nick, I published a batting buyer's guide at BaseballHQ.com late last week, and the premise was we are going to look for batters whose current year-to-date performance was way out of line with their projected balance of your performance, which might indicate guys who are underachieving or overachieving. And I know one of the names on the potential overachievers list was Raphael Fercal. Yeah, an incredible start, really, for Rafael Fercal, and, and uh, good news for those who bought him, but uh, lots of reason to sell high, I think, at this point. Uh, as you mentioned, one of the uh, one of the big reasons is a health issue. 
Uh, this is a guy who's been on the DL a lot in the last three years, uh, 281 DL days over from 2008 to 2011. Uh, has only made 500 bats once in that, in that time span. So uh, the likelihood that he'll stay healthy for the whole season is not good. Uh, and also his hit rate is at 41%, and we certainly don't expect that to last. Uh, here's a guy whose uh, normal hit rate to be down around 30%, which is going to bring that incredible 370 batting average uh, uh, down quite a bit. Yeah, he also has a f- slugging uh, percentage around 500, which is uh, really helping him in RBI in the early going, but boy, that's way higher than usual for Raphael Fercal. We don't think of him anymore as a power hitter. He was once upon a time pretty good, uh, pretty good home run guy, double digits, but I think those days are gone too. Yeah, I think they are too. And you look at his power index, which which we used to, to kind of measure absolute power away from that slugging percentage, and it's normal for him, about the same as it's been the last uh, the last few years. So we don't see any great power come back for Rafael Fercal, uh, but uh, you're right, that slugging percentage is much too high. Nick, in the playing time today column, uh, we see that Alex Presley, I think they had high hopes for him in Pittsburgh. I know a lot of people who rostered him during drafts and auctions this year had high hopes demoted. Demoted. You know, one of the interesting things about him, if you look at uh, certainly there's reason to demote him at this point, uh, 220 batting average, and he's really struggled over the last three weeks, I think something like three hits and 40-some at-bats. So they're hoping he can get untracked, I think, a bit at uh, at uh, AAA, but uh, if you look at what's going on with Alex Presley this year, it's really not good news. Last year, that, that wonderful season he had was fueled by uh, growth in contact rate, uh, growth in walk rate, uh, growth in his uh, in his line drive rate. He's given all of that back to the start at the start of the year. Everything's kind of reverted to where it was a year ago. His contact rate has dropped from 81% to 75%. His walk rate is cut in half. It, it wasn't even really good a year ago at 6%, but it's down at 3%. Uh, his uh, his ground ball rate, he's given back uh, 10% of those line drives. Those have become ground balls. So a lot of bad things going on right now with Alex Presley. And, of course, when you've got uh, – we, we say that once a player displays a skill, he owns it. But right now he's got a lot to reverse to get back to where he was a year ago. Yeah, just because he owns the skill doesn't mean he's necessarily displaying it at any given time. And, of course, fantasy owners everywhere want to know, is there any upside to grabbing Nate McLeod, for instance? Probably not at this point. I mean, Nate McLeod's big year was 2008, and that's that's been gone for a few years. And his uh, Nate McLeod's uh, power index has fallen steadily since that point. He's struggling actually more than Presley is. So I don't think Nate McLeod is the answer. The the guy to look at really the, who may get a call sooner than uh, they were expecting him to in Pittsburgh is Starling Marte. A prospect. A prospect. Yeah, he may be the guy. You know, I mean, they don't have anybody right now who can hit. And you you think he's supposed to be a center fielder. But uh, at this point, uh, you know, uh, they may finally decide, well, what the heck, we're going to go ahead and bring him up and see what he can do. Well, he's di- he's been all right down at AAA Indianapolis. Uh, he's hitting around 260, I think, a few homers. Had some bags, nine stolen bases. So if he comes up in the next little while, Marte might be a guy to keep an eye on if that's something that you need. But you can't steal first base, Nick, and he's only walking 5% of the time at AAA. That's not good when you get promoted and the pitching gets better at the major league level. No, that's definitely true, and that's been his that's been his problem all the way through. One of the, another one of these guys with good speed, uh, who's got to figure out how to get on first base, and if you can't take a walk, that becomes more and more difficult. In the uh, starting pitchers column, our analyst Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com talked about a lot of pitchers who are seeing changes in their fastball velocity, and this is a really good indicator of how successful a pitcher will be or could be. And uh, one of the names that popped up in his column that he talked about was left-hander J. A. Happ down in Houston. You know, really interesting column, I thought, this week and, and looking at fastball velocity because that's something that's uh, one of those things that's kind of hidden back there a bit and uh, that we don't always see. And you're right, J.A. Happ has put uh, a lot on his fastball 
over the past uh, over the past year, and it's showing up in his dom rate. His dom rate is up to 8.7 strikeouts per nine innings. Uh, and has been climbing steadily over the past couple of years. So far, that's not being reflected in Hap's stats. He's got a 5.72 ERA, a 1.55 whip. Uh, doesn't look too good. He's probably sitting out there on most people's waiver wire. But the problem right now with Jay Hap is he's been giving up too many home runs. A home run rate at 17%, a home run per fly rate of 17%, and that's high. Our projection for the balance of the year is only 10%. And once that comes down, then certainly his ERA is going to come down. Uh, XERA right now expected ERA 4.02. So here's a guy that you, if you're if you've got a problem with the pitching staff and got a, a way to stash somebody until he turns things around a little bit, Hat is certainly someone to look at. And uh, Stephen also mentioned Tim Lincecum. Of course, his struggles have become a big subject of controversy around the fantasy baseball world. And it turns out his fastball is down fairly significantly. It is. Fastball is down significantly, and that's a real problem. If you look at, uh, you know, look at Lincecum's uh, uh, expected earned run average, and it's almost two runs below his current 5.77 ERA. So looking beneath the numbers with Lincecum, things look pretty good. His hit rate's too high, his strand rate's too low, a lot of bad luck going on. So you might say, yeah, well, you know, this guy could turn things around. But, but the drop in fastball velocity has got to be a real concern at this point. Uh, his dom rate is actually up a little bit. Uh, interestingly enough, but uh, I'm really concerned about the loss of fastball velocity. Yeah, 3.1 miles an hour, Stephen Nickran reports, from April of last year to April of this year, and 3.1 miles an hour, you know, it doesn't sound like a big difference if you're driving from Schenectady to Rochester or something, but uh, when you're trying to sneak a fastball past uh, Matt Holiday or something, 3.1 miles an hour is a lot of velocity to lose. It is a whole lot of velocity to lose. I mean, the way to think about it is this, if you want to think about the, the difference. 95 miles an hour fastball puts you at the top of the majors in terms of uh, in terms of fastball philosophy. 92 miles an hour, yeah, that's okay, but there are a lot of guys throwing 92 miles an hour. So, you know, that three miles an hour is a, is a significant drop. And from 92 to 89, now you're talking about, you know, Carl Pavano. You are, and do. You know, you're talking about a real drop in velocity and something that's down into uh, – very, very average territory. It's not that we're going to suggest that you have to be throwing 95 miles an hour to succeed in the major leagues. There are plenty of pitchers who get by because they have outstanding uh, breaking pitches, change-ups, and so on, know how to work hitters and that kind of thing. But what Lincecum's uh, ace in the hole, if you will, has always been his ability to blow it by you when he really needs to. And gosh, as long as that fastball is off by three miles an hour or more, you've got to all of a sudden suspect that Maybe he's not going to be able to do that quite as often, and especially in key situations with runners in scoring position and so on. So uh, Stephen summarized it by saying he's gone from a steady ace to one with risk, and I think that's a good summary. I thought that was an outstanding summary, exactly what we're looking at with Lindsay at this point. And uh, just so we know, I should mention uh, the other San Francisco pitcher who has looked good, Madison Bumgarner, also has some fastball questions from 92 last year to about 90.9 this year. So another guy to keep an eye on in San Francisco. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move over to the American League. BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. Another exciting week, Patrick. Yeah, it was. It's been a good season so far, full of surprises and full of anomalies, I guess, with uh, much lower batting averages than we're used to seeing. Uh, but let's start with the bullpens. We've been talking about bullpens with our other experts from BaseballHQ.com, so let's talk about them in the American League. Starting in Oakland, Grant Balfour is out, and an old name, Brian Fuentes, draws in as the closer. Can this last, and can it work? Uh 
it's hard to tell because Fuente's skills are so different than the past. Uh, Balfour had excellent skills. He just gave up the long ball. And after tiring of that, they switched to Fuentes, uh, as Balfour is not striking out people as much as before. Fuentes certainly has been a closer before, 200 career saves, but very differently now than he used to be. Uh, he's always struggled with his control in the past, but this year he's walking just 1.3 batters per nine innings, unprecedented in his career. Uh, he's always walked at least three batters per nine innings over a full season. So... It's very unusual, and the question is this early in the season, is it something that Fuentes is consciously doing and succeeding at, or is it just one of those low sample size anomalies? His uh, dominance is back in the positive direction and you know, has been acceptable. So he's been okay right now. The big question is, can he hold on? And there's you got Balfour right behind him, and also Ryan Cook, uh, who came over in the Trevor Cahill trade as another potential guy uh, hasn't get up and earned run in 17 innings this season, despite having bad control himself. So, real interesting perspective out there in the Oakland bullpen. Ron Chandler argues a little later on in the show as well, uh, Matt, that uh, the bullpen situation is being exacerbated by the fact that teams have a better understanding of what works out there, and that if a guy blows us two saves, three saves in a row, especially if he's not a big dollar contract guy, that a manager is much more willing now than he used to be because he understands now much more than he used to that it's a matter of skills and not mindset or any of these other uh, uh, ideas that have really fallen into disrepute. I think it's a combination of the factors. I think skills are the most important factor. I think the pitcher's mental makeup is also important. That's why some managers have resisted the temptation to move a Sergio Romo to the closer role instead of Santiago Casilla or some other examples where you know Mike Adams hasn't really been handing the closer job too often. It uh, doesn't mean they cannot do it. We really don't know. But the manager seems to feel that mentally they may have a different makeup. So it's really difficult to tell. Obviously, with so many closers changing and new ones succeeding, it does give the manager more leeway in general to say, hey, I don't have to stick with that closer. What I think is interesting is that, remember back in the day, you had sinker ballers as closers. You had Kent Tocolvi and Dan Quisenberry, and, and uh, you know, Doug Jones was a changeup-based closer. You had lots of Gene Garber, same way. You had lots of closers traditionally that sometimes were sinker ballers, and you don't see that as much in modern-day baseball, but there's no reason that inducing a ground ball isn't a, an effective weapon in the ninth inning. Yeah, and uh, even nowadays, um, it's starting to turn back that way. A guy who has a specialized skill like that, who can get those outs, even if he doesn't f meet the uh, very high strikeout model, uh, can be counted on to to get back into that closer role. In in the in New York, the Yankees have had a kind of a situation where it's skills versus experience. With Rivera down for the year with the knee injury, they first looked at uh, David Robertson. He struggled shall we say in his first uh, couple of times out and then uh, he got hurt and now Rafael Soriano who probably doesn't have Robertson's skills but does have a lot of closer experience most recently in Tampa so when right now Rafael Soriano's your man in New York but what happens when Robertson comes back well I think Soriano having the experience and the fact that Robertson struggled would have to be the odds on favor to keep the the job. He has had great skills in the past, and this year's no exception with the striking out nearly a batter per inning again, and that's been pretty consistent throughout his recent career. He did have some control problems in 2011, which we had not seen before uh, in his history. He did walk sixth then in April this year, 
But uh, in May, he sort of got that under control. The big question with Soriano is, can he keep the ball in the park? He's certainly not a sinker baller by any stretch of the imagination. Always a very high fly ball rate and always been bitten by the long ball, though not at a higher rate. His fly balls tend to be outs, but he is a fly ball pitcher. And in Yankee Stadium, especially in the summer, uh, that's a bandbox and, and really could lead to some struggles. And I think it's one of the reasons that some of the front office did not want Soriano signed when he was a free agent for Yankee Stadium. And yet he had uh, some pretty good save years despite those very high fly ball rates over 50% in 09 and 010. He had 72 saves in two years, and his fly ball rate was at 50%. So it can work, but then there are park effects to consider as well. Yeah, and I think he's a guy who didn't walk batters, and he had a very low batting average against. He didn't give up many hits. So although he did give up some fly balls and some home runs, often they were solo homers and he had enough of a cushion or didn't give them up in key moments. Uh, he's always had very good whip uh, until 2011, and so that's something he consistently did show those excellent skills. In Detroit, uh, probably nobody really looking to make any sudden moves as far as replacing Jose Valverde, who had the perfect year last year. But there are chinks in the armor, Matt, and that has renewed speculation that maybe it would be wise to place a small reserve list bet, or maybe more, on Joaquin Benoit. Well, Valverde did uh, have some injury struggles here this week, and we talked earlier in the season about his uh, peripherals do not support his excellent 2011 season, so there is reason to just think there may be a struggle, whereas Benoit has been excellent for the Tigers. Uh, elite the past two seasons, 2.15 ERA, 0.87 whip, 10.2 dominance, and a 2.1 command rate, or control. So excellent control. That yields about a 5 command, which is excellent. He got off to a little shaky start this year, uncharacteristically wild in April, uh, but he seems to have fixed that in May, and his dominance is 14.7. So here's a guy hasn't really had the chance as a closer in his history, but has fantastic skills as a setup reliever, and so therefore would make sense as the first option in that Detroit bullpen if something happened to Valverde. But what about Octavio Dotel? He converted a save when Valverde had some trouble last week, and Dotel does have some background in that, and if the... Uh, Detroit Tiger management structure thinks we want an experienced guy. Does Dotel jump ahead of Benoit as far as the uh, pecking order in the bullpen? Well, if he wants experience, Dotel certainly has that closing experience. And again, as we mentioned, if Leland thinks that Benoit does not have the mental ability to close, then he's going to use Dotel. Dotel has struggled very much against left-handed batters recently, though. He's sort of been a right-handed specialist. So I think it will be very difficult to make him a full-time closer. I think he'd be more of a spot situational guy. Uh, when, face with a right-hander in the ninth inning. Staying in Detroit, sort of, they finally said goodbye to Brandon Inge after many years of serviceable uh, performance. He immediately got signed by Oakland and immediately had an impact with two grand slams. Uh, this looks like quite a, an outlier week for Brandon Inge, but is it worth looking at Brandon Inge as a replacement for a fantasy roster? Even with all the third-base injuries we've seen in the league, he still is not. I mean, there's just no way to think. This guy's just swinging for the fences. It's his last hurrah. We don't see anything here that indicates that he's going to come back. His expected batting average is high at 286, um, but he's always struggled against right-handers. His walk rate is down. His contact rate is still in the low 70s. Um, his hit rate has been low, but his home run fly ball rate is 25%, which is you know, three times what it normally is. So despite these, again, this small sample sizes make some of his skills look very good, but in Oakland Coliseum, which depresses right-handed hit homers by 9%, uh, and it's also difficult to keep the ball in play because every foul ball is an out there pretty much. 
Uh, it's really difficult to see. He's hitting less fly balls. Um, it's really difficult to see Inge being a, a good contributor for any fantasy team unless you're in a very, very deep AL-only league where you just really need those homers and can take the batting average hit. Also in Oakland, Josh Reddick looked like the kind of guy that would be at the fringes of most fantasy rosters, but uh, he's actually having a pretty good year so far in Oakland. This guy was a pretty... Uh, Highly touted as a secondary prospect, not one of those uh, Alex Gordon types, but certainly a guy who had the skills to contribute on a major league level, sort of in the Luke Scott mode. Uh, and he's been getting a chance to play in Oakland and making the best of it. His power next is 153. He's also stolen four bases, which matches his uh, annual volume each of the last three years. I mean, this is a guy who because uh, actually stealing some bases, too. Uh, his expected batting average fully supports his 290 batting average. He's got an 80% contact rate, so there's no reason to think that Reddick can't keep it up. Uh, he could struggle with the power a little bit. His home run per fly ball rate is the highest of his career at 16%, but that's not unheard of, and he has had a lot of power in the minor leagues. When healthy, he struggled with some injuries, and he's got a 45% fly ball rate. So uh, while he may not quite keep up this pace, he is a decent power source as well. So far this year, he's been nearly a $30 player, so uh, imagine there's virtually no one anywhere in any fantasy league who paid anywhere near that. So, gosh, if his productivity fell by half, relatively speaking, and he became a $15 player, he's still going to be a very profitable guy. This seems like the kind of guy that you might want to look at as a trade target if you get involved in trade uh, talks, and I know your, uh, your Market Pulse commentary a little later on is about looking at consistency rather than potential. So what would you look at as Josh Reddick being a, a trade target for somebody who thinks they're selling high? Uh, I, I would probably sell him high because I think the other thing, when you look at his minor league numbers, he's been very streaky, and he's not posted this high of an average, uh, not posted this power in any of his recent minor league seasons. So he would definitely be a sell-high candidate. I think there is the possibility that he can keep this up at a little bit lower level, but uh, being an unproven major leaguer, as he gets around the league a couple times, the book gets around on him. I think he does have holes in his swing that can be exploited. So I would definitely be selling high on Reddick as opposed to uh, trying to go acquire him, expecting the same production. Let's close by looking at a couple of pitchers in the surprising Cleveland Indian organization, starting with Justin Masterson. The team's doing well. Justin Masterson, not so much. Is, is he going to bounce back sometime this year, do you think? What are the signs? Well, we'd like to think so, but actually, if you look at his history, this year is probably more consistent with his performance than 2011 was. In 2011, the big difference was his control was much improved. He walked one less batter per nine innings, down to 2.7 walks per nine innings, uh, which really took him to another level. His ERA was 321. His expected ERA supported that with a 351 expected ERA. This year, however, his control has left him. He's walking 4.8 batters per nine innings. Before 2011, he walked about four batters per nine innings, so that seems to be more the norm than 2011. I think he can improve his control rate, but his dominance has fallen each of the last four seasons, down to 6.1 strikeouts per nine innings in 2012. So there's definitely concerns with Masterson. He's uh, given up more home runs than in the past. His batting average against left-handers uh, continues to be uh, around 300, so that's a, a real concern. The only thing working in his favor right now is his strand rate 65%, which is very low. So that would uh, make you think that maybe with a little bit more fortune, he can lower his ERA. And I th certainly think he can get it below 5, down to the 4.5, uh, 4.25 region. But uh, here's a guy who, until he gets that skill of getting the ball back over the plate, is going to struggle. When you're walking more guys and 
being unlucky with your strand rate, that's a lot more runs. Those are two things working together that create something uh, really horrible in your ERA column. Yeah, the 65% strand rate, and it combines with the unlikely high level of ERA for a ground ball pitcher like him. 55% ground balls is pretty normal for uh, for Justin Masterson over the years. He's had a 14% home run per fly ball rate, which is quite high. You'd ex- You'd almost have to guarantee some kind of return to norm- normality as far as how many home runs he's giving up being less and how many runners are not scoring being more. So his ERA really should fall. Yeah, I think he's going to be usable. I think he's going to be okay. But the 3.21 he produced in 2011 is definitely the anomaly here. I'm looking for something between four and four and a half in that range, four and a quarter right in there. Uh, once he gets his control rate back under, his hit strand rate straightens itself out, and that home run for fly ball returns to normal. But, but this is not uh, a guy that's going to lead your ERA of your staff. He's going to be a guy who doesn't hurt your ERA too much and hopefully comes up with wins as Cleveland Indians continue to win and uh, doesn't hurt you in any other columns as well. Earlier this month, Matt, uh, Dave Adler of BaseballHQ.com, writing about Derek Lowe of the Tribe, used a, a funny little headline. It says, Don't buy low, haha, <laughs> sell high. And at the time, uh, Lowe was not even doing as well as he is now. He's leading the American League in ERA among starters, and he's uh, got six wins and seven quality starts in eight appearances. Uh, this just seems out of this world. Well, it is out of the world, and, and, and there's no way he's going to keep it up. Obviously, everyone would know he's not going to keep up a 205 ERA, especially when he's got a whip of 144 that's telling more of the story. He's got an unusual 86% strand rate, and that's high even for a reliever. His expected ERA is actually 443, almost two and a half runs more per nine innings. He's only struck out 2.2 batters per nine innings while walking nearly three, so his command rate is only 0.8. He's a Definite extreme ground ball pitchers, and they sometimes defy the odds. But uh, he's certainly not going to keep his ERA under three the rest of the year. Uh, we talked about him, I thought, as a buy low candidate in the offseason, a very low risk guy you could pick up because his expected ERA in 2011 was 3.66. So it was really not much different than his 2010 season, which most people would say was a success with a 16 and 12 record and an ERA of four. And that was certainly the expectation level for 2011. And I think also for 2012, the Indians would be happy with that. They're getting much more than that now, but I wouldn't expect it to continue the rest of the year. What do you make in general of the whole Cleveland approach to their pitching staff this year, which seems to have been they're going with an extreme ground ball staff, maybe trying to shore up their infield defense, especially at the corners, as Drupal Cabrera is not a bad shortstop, Kipnis a bit of a wild card at second base, a converted outfielder, of course. But do you think this approach will stand the test of time? Well, normally you'd expect the gold glove quality defense to be up the middle in Ezreal Cabrera and Kipnis, as you mentioned. The Indians have tried doing it at the corners, and I think at the first base it makes a lot of sense because the first baseman can improve everyone's defense by being able to, to pick those difficult ones in the dirt and uh, you know come off the bag when need be and you know, if you really can work that bad, you can save some runs that way. Third base, not quite as much action, but Jack Canahan's been a one of those blue-collar guys who's come in there and taken control of the position and give them a lot of reliability and some clutch hitting when he was healthy. So I think Indians' philosophy was that we have all these ground ball pitchers. We like pitching to contact. The wind can blow out to Jacobs Field, especially in the summertime. And by having those ground ball pitchers, they wanted to surround them with good defense, and that's obviously the reason for the Casey Kochman signing. He's much better defensively than Matt Laporta or Ryan Garko before him. So uh, I think from the first base perspective in particular, it does make a lot of sense and certainly has proven 
correct as, as the Indians are sit atop the AL Central right now. Can Cleveland win the Central Division? Boy, I'll tell you what. I think they can. I was very surprised that Chris Perez has been as effective as he has. The bullpens stayed the course. Grady Sizemore will be coming back here in a month. If he could stay healthy, they do have some pitching depth now that Jen Margomez has emerged as a, a decent starter. They certainly can. I would still have to say the Tigers are the favorites, but I think the Indians have established themselves as legitimate contenders for that title. It's going to be a terrific division, I think. Yeah, your Market Pulse commentary, I mentioned a minute ago, is later in the show. What's your topic? We're going to talk about utilizing potential versus reliability at the trade table. We talked about it so much in the preseason at the draft, but there's still lots of profit to be made in the trade market as people overvalue youth and undervalue reliability. All right, Matt, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again next week. Always look forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Steve Gardner, the fantasy editor at USA Today and USAToday.com, comes up next. Stay with us. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. That ball hit deep in the left center field. Wise back, back. Makes the catch! What a play! Wise makes the catch! What a play by Wise! Mercy! What a play by Wise! Under the circumstances, one of the greatest catches I have ever seen in 50 years in this game. Alexei! Yes! 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 History! Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Pleasure now to be joined by Steve Gardner of USA Today and usatoday.com. And Steve has just been promoted to senior fantasy editor. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. Break, breaking some news on the program today, huh? Absolutely. It's a, it's a well-deserved honor, and, and I should say, if you were working for some other kinds of magazines, that would have a whole different kind of ramification, that title. <laughs> exactly right. But uh, thankfully, I'm, I'm where I should be. Before we get started talking about fantasy baseball in particular, USA Today also has fantasy presence, especially in football, but a lot of different sports. Oh yeah, we do, and um, and that's one of the great things with the uh, the Big Lead Sports Network, which uh, Baseball HQ is a part of, uh, combines a whole bunch of different fantasy sites across the spectrum, um, and obviously football and baseball are the two biggest ones, and uh, we've got folks from uh, the Huddle, FootballGuys.com, and uh, and uh, let's see, Fantasy Guru, um, all sorts of, of great sites, along with KFFL that does football and baseball, so the the family is getting bigger and uh it's it can mean only good things for uh for folks who check out our stuff on baseball HQ and uh, USA today and everywhere and uh, fantasy also you, I'm sure you do fantasy basketball how about golf and NASCAR those kind of sports they're up and coming and you know there is a a, a group of of people and hardcore fans of of those particular sports um, that are very passionate about their fantasy sports. So uh, that's that's an area that uh, is growing, and uh, we will definitely be addressing that too. As a Canadian, you know what I think you need is fantasy curling. Now there you go. You know, with the you know, with with the excitement that comes around every four years in the Olympics, I think uh, you know when the when the Winter Games come up in in Russia, 
that's when we're going to strike while the iron is hot. Well, actually, the iron's really cold because they play on ice. No, oh, <laughs> it's it's golf where the irons are hot or something. There you like go. That. Strike where the brooms are cold or the stones are cold. Oh, well, the stones are very cold. Believe me, because you're always crouching down. <laughs> Uh, Steve, what do you think the big stories have been so far for from the fantasy baseball perspective? Uh, I think you have to start with, with Albert Pujols and a guy who was either, if he wasn't number one taken overall in, in most drafts, he's in the top three. Um, you have to say that the, his disappointing season so far is huge from a fantasy standpoint. I also think that the great turnover among closers, it seems worse than it's ever been, and I think because we're so close to it, we say that uh, with a lot of things, but I can't remember a season in which we've had so much turnover in terms of closers. You've had injured third basemen left and right, and I think another thing, too, it's been interesting to see two of the top prospects come up in terms of Mike Trout and Bryce Harper and come up early in the season. Usually you see uh, those top prospects wait until later on, but these guys have come up early, and they've made some significant impact. So Fantasy owners have had had a lot to deal with so far in the uh, the first part of 2012. Well, the Albert Pujols story certainly is huge, and we'll talk about closers in a minute. But Steve, uh, we've been counseling everybody who reads BaseballHQ.com, and I'm sure I've seen in USAToday.com and practically everywhere. Fantasy baseball experts are telling readers, just be patient. It's Albert Pujols. Just be patient. And I still think that's sound advice, but at what point do you think you do have to start thinking about cutting bait and and looking in other directions, even for an established superstar producer like Albert Pujols? Well, the only thing is, to be able to cut bait, you have to have somebody to put into that lineup spot and to find somebody who could potentially give you. I mean, those stats that Albert Pujols has put up, you know, in April and the first part of May are done with. You, know, you can't do anything about those. You have to look about going forward. And Albert Pujols still has the talent to be able to go on a huge hot streak. And I don't know that there's anybody that you could slide in there. I don't even know that putting him out of your active lineup and maybe on your reserve uh, lineup is going to do really anything for your team. That You could put in somebody to to help you anymore. You just have to sit there and hope. You know, the Angels made a change this week in, uh, in their hitting coach. Maybe that's something you never know, what, uh, what fuels the fire and, and lights the spark with Albert. So maybe that could be it. Um, he, he's still Albert Pujols. He's still got the ability to catch fire. And uh, I, I think it's way too early. You know, maybe if it's after the All-Star break. We saw that with Adam Dunn last year. Um, you know, maybe at that point you start to consider it. But, but right now, there's just still too much of the season left and still way too much upside to really worry about Albert Pujols uh, and do something about it. Yeah, if you get rid of him now, it's a real sell-low situation. You're, you're, you're going to get pennies on the dollar for what he's worth. Although, I have seen some people posting on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums asking questions like, I've got an offer to get... Uh, to get a, a CC Sabathia, for instance, I've got an offer for Dan Heron for for Albert Pujols, and in that case, it's something I think maybe you have to think about a little more because a lot of it depends on how much help will you get from a Sabathia as far as your pitching staff is concerned versus the cost of losing even an upside for Albert Pujols down the stretch. It, it really does come down to cost benefit on a case by case basis. Oh, most definitely, and and if your offense is doing fine and you have Pujols and he's not contributing anything and you can upgrade your pitching staff, I think that's a legitimate way of, of selling low, if you will, and, uh, and just saying, okay, 
I don't want to wait for whenever this rebound is coming. I need some guys to uh, to help me and bolster my you know pitching staff or stolen bases or something that Pujols is not going to be able to give you. And um, you know at this point in the season we've had enough at bats to where you can kind of see if your team is is strong in a particular area and you're able to to maybe move Pujols to bolster other parts of your team. Um, and position your team for the long run. So I think that's definitely a valid strategy. And we always harp on this here at Baseball HQ Radio, but when you're making that decision, should you decide that Pujols might make a tradable commodity because of your personal situation on your team, be very aware of to whom you're trading him. You want to try to put his homers and RBIs, should they come around, onto teams that are not going to be competing directly with you and might even hinder the progress of teams that you are competing with. That's a very good uh, very good thing to note. And especially later in the year, I, I think it's easier to see you know, when you're coming close to the, the trade deadline, whether it's in the majors or in your particular league, it may be a little easier to see that now. Uh, you have to have to do a little projecting um, with with some of the other stats uh, of teams in your leagues uh, at this point in the season, and you know that those teams could make other moves as well um, on down the line, so it's it's a little bit tougher to do that. Another big name in the news so far this season has been Josh Hamilton, the exact opposite of Albert Pujols. This guy's had a pretty good season. If he if he stops playing tomorrow, he's had a pretty decent season. But he's got a lot of injury risk. He's got substance abuse issues in his past that might cost him games down the road. Uh, how tempted are you to sell high when a guy like Josh Hamilton has such a lot to offer a prospective acquirer and such a lot of risk for you to hold? I think number one is that if you're going to sell high on Hamilton, I, I think you need to get multiple players back, and you have to have a need in multiple places. You know, Like we talked with, with Pujols, if you can bolster your pitching staff and get a CC Sabathia and maybe you know somebody who's a, a speed demon, a Michael Bourne or somebody like that, I think that's that's where you're going to find uh, you're able to sell high with a guy like Hamilton. If you if you try and just make a one for one trade or, or something like that, it's it's not going to work out. I don't think just trading on the fact that he may get hurt. I mean, Josh Hamilton has played you know, uh, a, a good number of games in a season. And then even when he won the MVP the, uh, a couple years ago, he didn't play all of, all of September and still had tremendous numbers for the full season. So you have to look at that. But, yeah, if if you've got multiple needs and you've got a guy in Hamilton who's sitting there and is carrying you, you know he's not going to keep this pace all season. So you can still, you know, kind of backfill a little bit his spot in the lineup and improve somewhere else. I think that's a, a legitimate thing for people that uh, that have Hamilton to think about. And, of course, in years past, we might have said, if you were thinking of trading Josh Hamilton, well, you might want to go to the team that has an established closer. But as you mentioned this year, there's pretty much no such thing as a, an established closer anymore. What do you think is going on with this large number of failing closers? Well, I think, number one, the, the Tommy John injuries um, that we've had with Ryan Madsen and, and Joaquin Soria, um, those are kind of injuries that you can't plan for. Uh, Mariano Rivera going down, you can't plan for that. He's been so consistent for his entire career. Um, those those types of flukes uh, have to be put in a, in a different category themselves. And maybe a lesson for next year is if you're going to get a closer to maybe make sure that your lineup, uh, you know, when you draft, you have – the David Robertsons or the uh, Rafael Sorianos. If there's a, a definite line of succession to make sure that you kind of uh, you know handcuff your ace closer with the guy who's next in line. Um, 
but yeah, for in terms of turnover right now and the way that teams are going through their closers, it's a tough job. It's hard to succeed, and the leashes are so short. It's, it just seems like win now is so important to managers that if a guy struggles and blows a couple of saves, he gets pulled immediately, um, and therefore you get you know such the turnover and guys that maybe don't deserve to be closers getting a shot to close, and then the uh, the uh, the dominoes fall over as as fantasy owners start scrambling for the Dale Thayers of the world. And, you know, while he's doing fine and Rafael Solis of the Cubs is is doing okay, um, you know, then you start everybody using up their fab dollars for two or three saves. And um, you can really dig yourself a big hole um, because it just perpetuates the situation every time they change closers and you have to go chase. You know, that's that's why I, I would much rather, if you're in that situation and you need saves, just go ahead and maybe find the, the Craig Kimbrell owner or a Jonathan Papelbon owner and make a trade and sit everything out. <laughs> um, uh, unless, you know, you've got a guy coming back off the DL at some point that's going to give you saves and, and be a stable closer. I'm, I'm almost to the point where we've heard for so long, don't pay for saves. I'm almost to the, the other side of the, uh, the pendulum. Go ahead and pay for the guys that you think are going to be there all season long and are going to get the job done and let everybody else fight over the scraps that uh, seem to be out there every week. Yeah, you make a good point. You mentioned Kimbrell as a pretty much sure thing as a closer still, Jonathan Papelbon, of course, but gosh, who would have expected a guy like Jim Johnson in Baltimore, who was fairly shaky coming out of spring training as the closer, he had an injury issue towards the end of last year, was considered a fairly low strikeout guy, but all of a sudden, here you have a guy who has really grown into the role, and you have Fernando Rodney down in uh, Tampa, where now it looks like Kyle Farnsworth, if he comes back at all, might have to take second fiddle because Rodney's doing so well. Gosh, it's really difficult to to calibrate, I guess is the word, to use the, the closer situations in two-thirds of the teams or more. Yeah, uh, that and, and Chris Perez, too, was a guy that was hurt in spring training, and there was a lot of talk, and, and I was one of those people joining in the conversation that Vinny Pastano had better numbers and better skills and would probably overtake Perez even when Perez came back from his injury. Uh, but then, you know, look, he's tied with Jim Johnson for the Major League lead and saves with 12. So, yeah, you, you just can't predict it. And I think the one thing that fantasy owners should remember is it's one category. If you play in a 5 by 5 league, you know, maybe you can try and, and luck in to save somehow. But remember, there are nine other categories. Go ahead, maximize your roster, move up, you know, and, and try and, and gain ground in the standings in the other nine categories. And just you, you just have to let saves go I think, you know, not necessarily punt them, but not be as focused on that one category as you are, you know, at the expense of the other nine. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner, fantasy editor at USA Today and usatoday.com. And Steve, uh, I know you have a column on this coming up soon, but give us a little scoop on how you think Andy Pettit's going to do as he comes back into the Yankees rotation. Well, you know, Andy Pettit has uh, has had a long and distinguished career. Um from a fantasy standpoint, though, I mean his his numbers, strikeout rates, and everything have not been super uh, super dominant, uh, and his ERA has been fine. The only problem is 
you know, Andy Pettit's been out of, of action for over a year now, and coming back, we saw a little bit of the rust. We saw a little bit of the old Andy Pettit, too, it's, in stretches, but he made some mistakes, allowed some home runs, and I think, you know, because of the rust, because of uh, Andy Pettit's age, you know, he's, he's getting up there, and, uh, and he hasn't pitched for a while. I think he's a big risk, and, you know, you can say the Yankees' offense is going to support him. They've done that tremendously throughout his career, um, but I don't know that Pettit is going to be a better pitcher than Ivan Nova, you know, the rest of the way. Ivan Nova, again, same sort of thing, not, not great peripherals, but he won 16 games last year. I mean, I think Pettit can be, can be valuable to fantasy owners, especially AL-only leagues, because he can get wins and just, you know, be in there for six innings and have the Yankees' offense support him. But I don't think he's going to give you the rest of the numbers. And remember, too, Every year that Andy Pettit has pitched for the New York Yankees, he's had Mariano Rivera at the back of the end of the bullpen closing out games for him. Um, although I think David Robertson is going to do a fine job, uh, I don't think he's Mariano Rivera by any stretch of the imagination. So there could be a few blown saves, a few losses there. So I, I don't think we're getting, you know, if fantasy owners think they're getting the old Andy Pettit, uh, that's not going to be the case. So I'm, I'm not as bullish as a lot of other people are. And, of course, Robertson's on the DL, which has put Soriano in the closer role. Robertson's expected back relatively soon, but now you've got a situation where you've got two guys who want to be closing and one of them's not, and a lot of uh, tumult, shall we say, at the back of the Yankees' uh, bullpen. Although I do like Robertson, I, mu- I must say. you know, if he's, if he's healthy and available, I think he takes that closer's job and runs with it. I mean, you saw the stats he put up last year, 100 strikeouts and 66 and two-thirds innings. I mean, he's got the skills to be able to do it. Um, it's just a question of what kind of opportunity he gets. Steve, we're well into that time of year when we start seeing the prospects come up. You mentioned uh, Mike Trout. You mentioned, of course, Bryce Harper coming up. Whether they come up as injury replacements or just because it's time or they want to sell some tickets or what the case might be, do you have any rules for assessing whether we should be thinking about rostering a particular young player, perhaps not as obvious a candidate as Trout or Harper, but some of the lesser ones? It, it really depends on the depth of your league, and I think anybody that's in a, a mixed league, you know, from 10 to 15 teams, probably isn't going to be able to count on any of the new call-ups um, over the balance of the season to do a whole lot for them. However, if you're in an NL-only league or an AL-only league, um, I think that's where the buying opportunity exists. And uh, you, know, I, you think of guys like you know, Desmond Jennings when he came up last year. Um, came up, was fantastic, you know, lots of stolen bases, had some home runs as well. Um, I, I think those are the kinds of guys that you want to look for. And uh, you have to time it, obviously. You, know, you can't have them uh, and pick them up and, and have them carry a, a bench spot or, or a reserve spot that could be going to somebody that you could use while they're still in the minor leagues. But um, you know, I, I think of guys like, say, Nolan Arenado in Colorado. Uh, if the Rockies continue to play poorly, um, they may not be as, uh, as inclined to bring him up early. But I think, obviously, there's a space for him at third base. They're, they've been getting little to nothing out of that. And Arenado is a guy that um, put up MVP numbers in the Arizona Fall League, led the minors in RBIs last year. Um, I, I think he's on the verge of being able to come up and contribute. So, And especially in Colorado, it's a great place to, to learn on the job. So he would be a guy that I would keep an eye on. Obviously, the Diamondbacks have uh, a, a very deep farm system. Uh, Trevor Bauer is, is a pitcher. Uh, Tyler Skaggs, another pitcher, that if they have a spot in their pitching rotation, 
where they need somebody to come up and, and help them out, uh, I think those two guys could certainly come up and be effective. But, you know, if you're, uh, if you're in a, a mixed league, probably not. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you just have to see how, you know, how the, how the season is shaping up for the teams, who they need, and what your team, your fantasy team needs, and, and what kind of roster space you have to add them. Well said, and I would only throw in one other thing. Take a look at the organization that's doing the call-up. Uh, I like to avoid the Houstons of the world, the Kansas Cities of the world, because oftentimes they make fundamental errors in assessing the the talents of these guys and oftentimes they're just bad teams and they bring these guys up too early because they just need a warm body out there to swing a batter or to throw some pitches so you know focus on teams that seem to have a track record of doing well with their prospects and bringing them up at the right time tampa comes to mind atlanta comes to mind and uh, maybe there are teams of course in the middle of between those two extremes but just to be cognizant of the organization that's making the move. Uh, Steve, in 2006, the combined batting average across Major League Baseball was 269. That's just six years ago. This year, it's 250, which is a 40-year low in uh, overall team uh, league batting averages. That's a point to five points every year going down. And strikeouts at the same time are all the way up to 7.3 per game. That's an all-time high. What do you think is going on here, and how should fantasy owners be playing this combination of trends? Well, we, we can't blame all of that on Albert Pujols this year uh, for dragging that average down. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I think one of the things, it makes guys you know, that, that you know make good contact. You look at Baseball HQ does a great job highlighting contact rate and guys that put the ball in play. You know, Michael Young uh, and, and Ichiro Suzuki for, for many years was a guy that you could count on um, to, to help boost your entire team's batting average. So I, I think you have to look a little bit closer at guys who are able to do that, have a high contact rate. Omar Infante was another guy that I saw in the, in the preseason and had my eye on because looking at those HQ stats and, and Infante, a great guy who puts the ball in play, a pretty decent uh, expected batting average, and he's continued to do that and, and do a, a fine job and provide a little extra power as a bonus this season. So I think you, you do have to look at, at those guys um, because they're more valuable now uh, because they can bring your batting average up. The other thing, though, you could go to the other extreme and just say you don't care about batting average and go ahead and, and roster the, the Adam Dunns and the Mark Reynolds of the world and try to build around the other categories. Uh, because it's so volatile, I think there's a chance that you know an Adam Dunn could hit 240 or 250 and, uh, and, and hit the way he's been doing so far this season, um, and all of a sudden, you know, you've got a bonus there. Uh, it, it, it's really hard to, to get a handle on that, and um, I think part of the reason, too, is that teams defensively are getting so much smarter, and we see a lot more shifting in the infield these days, and uh, I, I think that's where you can see teams defensively have kind of cut down on how many base hits leak through. You know, the, those little squibblers that, that have gotten through in the past aren't doing that anymore. So uh, I think that's a, another trend we have to be aware of. And if, if you're playing teams that like to shift a lot, like Tampa Bay, um, maybe be cognizant of that when you're setting your lineups each, each and every week. Yeah, it's not, it's just not the dribblers either. I was watching uh, Toronto does this uh, defensive positioning thing very aggressively. They move Brett Laurie around from third and they stand him in short right field. 
and uh, at least two or three times in the last couple of weeks, I've seen him throw guys out, and it wasn't on squibblers. These were line drive base hits through the right uh, side hole, and on one bounce, he'd pick it up and throw the guy out by 10 feet. And uh, you're right about that aspect of things. The ability of teams to turn balls into outs through positioning, I think, is getting better all the time and will continue to get better as they get more and more fine detail about where guys hit and under what circumstances and how to throw them the right pitch to make them hit it where you want them to hit it kind of thing. Also, I wonder, Steve, do you think, are the umpires being maybe a little more aggressive calling strikes because they're they're under such... Um, scrutiny from the cameras, from from the Fox Tracks uh, box on TV. So all of a sudden, a, an umpire who might have been willing to give the batter the benefit of the doubt knows he's he's being looked at. It could very well be. I, I know uh, you mentioned Brett Laurie. I'm I'm pretty sure he feels that way um, after some of the strikes that uh, were called on him last night or the other night. But um, but yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. It, it seems like the umpires are the big variable in all of this. And whether you get a guy that has, you know, some guys have larger strike zones than others, uh, and I think Major League Baseball would like to have a uniform strike zone, but it's it's so hard to do that. And, and maybe if umpires are being called out and we're not uh, aware of things like that, then perhaps, you know, maybe, that, maybe that's a, a very... Very good possibility. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with fantasy editor Steve Gardner of USA Today and usatoday.com. And Steve, before we let you go, we'll run through some quick hits. Uh, give us a National League hitter you think we might want to target for the balance of the year, somebody who's going to really deliver. I, I think uh, underachieving so far is, is Lucas Duda of the Mets. He was high on my list of, of players at the beginning of the season. Uh, I think he's still got uh, his stride to hit. Uh, I think he's going to hit some more home runs, and I think his batting average is going to go up. He'd be one of the guys that I would look at as a, as a buy-low candidate. What about in the American League? Uh, definitely Eric Hosmer is, is a guy I'd target. Uh, again, Last year was fantastic. I mean, he showed all the qualities you wanted in a guy to, uh, to lead your fantasy team. I thought he had an opportunity to possibly be a top-10 hitter this year, and instead he's below the Mendoza line. I think he, he's got to pick it up, along with, along with, of course, Albert Pujols, but uh, I don't know that you're going to be able to target him and buy him low. Yeah, maybe trade Albert Pujols for uh, Eric Hosmer and get some, uh, some bonus guys thrown in. You might do yeah, well. Yeah, that's, that's a good possibility. How about on the pitching side, National League pitcher to target? I would look for uh, Adam Wainwright has had his struggles so far this season, but his strikeout rate is still very high. Um, coming back from, from surgery, uh, I think the command is, is, is not yet where it needs to be, but um, he could be a guy. Tim Lincecum also has struggled with his location. He's had some bad luck. He's had some, some fielding problems behind him. Uh, I think he's on the verge of, of riding his ship. So those two guys might be uh, guys that I would look at as, as possible by low. And in the American? Um, you know, uh, Brandon Morrow has had a, had a great, uh, pretty good season so far. I, I think there's still room for improvement for him. And uh, he would be a guy that, that I would target um, just because I think there's more room for growth from him. And uh, if, if you can get him, maybe somebody thinks that they're selling high on him. I, I think there's still a lot more room for, uh, for Morrow to improve. That's an interesting point. Uh, buy high, sell low. Sometimes we get a little married to these concepts when, in fact, sometimes it's good to buy high because there's room to go higher. Uh, exactly. I've seen guys, especially in, in some of the experts' leagues that I've been in in the past, make one of those buy high kind of deals, and uh, it was the key to catapulting them to a championship. It can be done.
Now we'll go over to the dark side. A National League hitter you would drop or trade away or avoid altogether? Um, you know, I, I can't see Raphael for call. Um, he, he's been getting on base. He's been running. Uh, and this is a guy that has had injury problems for almost uh, you know, his entire career, especially the most recent years. So I, I would think he might be one guy that, uh, that I would consider, you know, maybe not dropping, but uh, if you can sell high on him and, and find somebody else, um, and improve your club in, in other areas, he might be a guy to look at. Yeah, as a matter of fact, he was uh, on the Baseball HQ Batting Buyer's Guide that I write every week. He was at the top of the National League list, along with Gerardo Parra of Arizona, a more of a playing time thing there, which I'm not entirely sure is going to be a problem for Parra because he's a good defensive outfielder playing uh, kind of behind uh, Jason Kubel, who's not. An American League hitter uh, that you think is a good sell-high candidate or a guy you should avoid in trade talks? Um. You know, we were talking a little bit about the shift and everything. David Ortiz is getting shifted on. Uh, I think he was one of the you know the first guys that was extensively shifted on. He's having a tremendous year, and uh, I, I, I'm very happy for David Ortiz because I think a lot of us kind of wrote him off uh, a couple of years ago, but he's been able to continue to uh, you know stick in there and 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 get even better. I, I don't think he can continue to be as good as he's been uh, so far this season. So it might be that you can, can parlay David Ortiz's hot start into uh, something to, uh, to help your team in other areas. I, I just have to think that, that teams are going to figure out how to pitch him and play him, and uh, he can't continue to beat the shift as often as he is. A National League pitcher that you think you should sell high on or avoid if somebody offers him to you? You know, I, I've been going back and forth about Steven Strasburg, and, and because of the uh, you know the innings limit that uh, the Nationals have put on, they're not telling anybody what that in- innings limit is. And I think because of that, obviously you can certainly get a-, a lot for him right now. The uncertainty comes toward the end of the year, and if you're in a head-to-head league, especially, you're probably not going to have Strasburg at the you know the biggest time of year when you need him um, in a roto league going down the stretch when you need to make your move. Uh, if they cut him off without any warning, uh, I think that could leave uh, fantasy teams hamstrung. So I might consider you know, thinking about, uh, about selling high on, on Steven Strasburg. I, I'm, I'm concerned, you know, can he hold up over an entire season? And you know, will the Nationals continue to be a- as good as they have been? So uh, he's one of those guys, I, I, like I said, I just I keep going back and forth. Do you, do you invest in him? Or do you sell him? It's so hard to say. Um, but if you can find the right trade, that might be uh, you know that might be the uh, the deal that puts your team over the top. Yeah, it's a good risk reduction strategy as well. If you are competing for the championship, this uh, he's the kind of guy because he has a big name, a, a bright future, especially in a keeper league that allows dumping. If you could get uh, quite a nice haul of of do- good to great players by trading away Steven Strasburg if you happen to have him. Uh, how about in the American League? Any pitchers jump to mind that are maybe overachieving and good sell high candidates? Jason Vargas with the Mariners is, is a guy that was probably on a lot of waiver wires to start the season, but um, he's performed admirably this season. Got uh, got a handful of wins. Um, WHIP is really low. Uh, you know, he might be one of those guys. I think he's he's rated pretty highly on the uh, player raters and in terms of dollar figures. Um, it's it, it's tough. I, I I think he would be one guy that I would possibly look to uh, to sell maybe Gavin Floyd of the White Sox as, as overachieved a little bit, even though he doesn't have 
but uh, but three wins. Still, the ERA is very low. The WHIP under one. Um, you know, maybe he would be a guy that uh, you might be a little bit antsy about if he's you know, if he's carried you to a, a lofty spot so far this season about whether he can keep it up. All right, Steve, thanks very much for doing this. You have a fantasy blog at usatoday.com, which is just excellent. It's called The Fantasy Windup. Give uh, our listeners just a brief overview of what they can find by checking out your Fantasy Windup blog. Sure. Uh, fantasywindup.usatoday.com is where you can uh, check it out. We've got uh, chats every week. Um, I do a chat on Monday. Ron Chandler does a chat on Wednesday. So uh, HQ readers can certainly come uh, check out Ron and, and get some tips from the master. We also have a, a variety of, of uh, posts on topics throughout the week. Um, we actually even have some, some contributions from some fellow uh, big lead sports uh, sites, um, as well as my analysis on things on a daily basis about uh, players that are called up, players that are, are uh, surging, players that are fizzling. So uh, just kind of like my fantasy spin on, on the news, and uh, it's updated seven days a week, and uh, it's a great place to go to, to get your, uh, your fantasy fix. And I have to ask, uh, between uh, the blog, all the writing that you do uh, covering uh, baseball and fantasy baseball, and now you're going to have, some, I'm sure, some administrative duties with your new editorial role, where do you find the time? Um, you know, you have to give 110%, uh, I hear, from, from some of the athletes that, uh, that I've spoken to. So that's, that's what I try to do for, for good old USA Today. Uh, it, it, it helps, Patrick, when you love baseball. Um, the way that I do. So even in, in my spare time, I'm checking out things and, and learning things. So it's really not, it's not like I'm putting in uh, all hours of the day. It's a, it's a labor of love, I guess you could say. Yeah, I suppose it's not like they've got you working uh, 60 hours a week uh, digging coal or, or uh, you know, cleaning people's teeth or something. Exactly right. We could, we could be doing a lot to a lot worse things with our uh, with our daily lives, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly right. Steve Gardner, thanks very much for joining us. We'll try to catch up with you again during the year. Uh, really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for the invite, Patrick. Always a pleasure talking to you. That's Steve Gardner, the fantasy editor at USA Today and usatoday.com. Our regular weekly commentaries are next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Ernie Shore was the perfect one. When Babe Ruth, he got the thumb. For a price, they sent him down to old New York. Things went bad till Cronin came. 46, they won again. The Sox had Tex and Pesky team with Bobby Dork. I'm talking baseball. West Farrell and Doc Kramer. Boston baseball. Scientists, the Hall of Famers. Dominic Parnell and Jimmy Fox. The Thumper just waiting in the box. Talking baseball. Baseball and the Sox. There were triple crowns and MVPs. He hit the ball with grace and ease. Teddy was as splendid as they come. Then Yastrzemski got the call. In 67, he did it all. And the pennant was flying high before his work was done. I'm talking baseball. Jackie Jensen, Reggie Pearsall, Boston baseball. Ronald's Rico and Don Schwal. Tony C, the monster, Ike the Lock. Lon Borg and the strange glove of the dock. We're talking baseball, baseball and the socks. Talking baseball in New England. Aganis and Smokey Joe. Stevens three hits in one inning. Carlton Fisk and Freddie Lynn. 
Please come to Boston in the spring. It's a beautiful thing. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with his Market Pulse. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes and leading off the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Toronto right-handed pitching prospect Noah Syndergaard. Over the last couple of years, the Toronto Blue Jays have been stockpiling high upside arms as fast as any organization in baseball. Those efforts are already starting to pay nice dividends, and their club at Low A Lansing features three of their best in Justin Nicolino, Aaron Sanchez, and Noah Syndergaard. While all three have substantial upside, Syndergaard has arguably the highest ceiling. The 19-year-old supplemental first-rounder has an ideal 6'5", 220-pound frame, and already features a 93-97 mile-an-hour fastball that tops out at 98. He complements the heater with a solid 73 to 75 mile an hour curveball and a very good 85 to 86 mile an hour changeup that has good sinking action and separation from his high octane fastball. Syndergaard uses his size effectively and pitches downhill well, keeping the ball down in the zone. He can sometimes overthrow his curveball, causing it to miss up in the zone or bouncing it in the dirt, but it has good shape to it and should develop into a solid third offering. Since being drafted in 2010, Syndergaard has had nothing but success, and his career minor league numbers are now 8-3 with a 2.04 ERA. He's walked 32 and struck out 109 in 97 innings. The Blue Jays limit their young hurlers to 3-4 to four inning starts early in their careers, so Syndergaard has not logged a ton of innings, but he has still been able to develop his secondary offerings and has the potential to become one of the best pitching prospects in the American League. After eight appearances in 2012, Syndergaard is 3-0 with a 1.88 ERA with 11 walks and 38 strikeouts in 28 innings. Syndergaard is still several years away from pitching in the majors, but those in deep keeper leagues should pounce on Noah Syndergaard and watch him dominate as he moves up. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, and Colby Garropy have reports and updates on organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars. Jeremy's call-up reports just this week have looked at St. Louis right-hander Eduardo Sanchez, Baltimore outfielder Xavier Avery, San Diego third base left fielder James Darnell, and many Many others. And Colby Garropy's watch list column this week looks at prospects who are lost in the shadows. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about profiting from reliability more than potential during the season. In your league, did Eric Hosmer go for more than Paul Konerko? I bet it was close in most leagues as people guessed that Hosmer once again would develop on his rookie year and have an even better sophomore season. We've said over and over that rookies don't follow a consistent plane and get a little bit better each year. They tend to regress, adjust, and then get better the second time around, have a few more struggles, then get even better the next time around. We often assume that players will get better in a linear fashion and in fact, just the opposite is the case. It's early in the season, but if you look at Paul Konerko's production, solid, consistent as always, versus Eric Hosmer's potential compared to his actual production, Konerko looks like a much better buy right now. 
You think you can't exploit this in trade scenarios? While listening to SiriusXM this week, one caller asked if he should drop the proven Eric Ibar, who's struggling this season, to pick up Brian Dozier, who doesn't come with much of a pedigree, even though he's a rookie who's going to be starting for the Twins. Dozier doesn't offer power, doesn't offer exceptional speed, and certainly isn't proven in the batting average category either. Compared to Eric Ibar, who certainly, if nothing else, has stolen base consistency each year that's been improving, as well as having some nice batting average contribution in the past, and although the Angels have been struggling, is in a much more powerful lineup than the Minnesota Twins. These kinds of decisions are out there for you every day, these kinds of trades, when you focus on the proven veteran instead of betting on potential. With the Market Pulse, I'm Matt Beagle for Baseball HQ. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about how skills and experience and some other things drive today's bullpen volatility. Back in 1998, I wrote that the bullpen closer's role was determined by a combination of talent, opportunity, and guile. The rule of TOG, if you will. Over time, BaseballHQ.com's bullpen analyst, Doug Dennis, showed that guile was really a figment of our imagination. Once given the opportunity, a pitcher's ability to close out games always came down to their skill. There was no secret special sauce, no special third element that would give an edge to any one of two similarly skilled pitchers. And since the beginning, I always preached the mantra, chase skills, not roles. In other words, talent would always be the ultimate driver of a player's opportunity to perform. But this year's bullpen fiascos have cast doubt on all these ideas, or at least that's how it seems. I've even read some analysts saying that we should toss the whole skills-not-roles mantra out the window. They used examples like Fernando Rodney and Brian Fuentes to prove their point, and Alfredo Aceves, and Chris Perez, and Matt Capps. Okay, okay, so maybe they're right, sort of. But cherry-picking a few bad seeds is always going to be an oversimplification of the issue. First of all, Skills are always going to be the primary driver. That's not going to change. But with the rise of pitching the past few years, major league managers perceive that they have more choices when it comes to selecting pitchers for high-leverage situations. Heck, everyone has the minimum daily required level of skill these days. Look at the St. Louis Cardinals. Every active member of that bullpen has a strikeout-to-walk ratio of at least 2.6, except for Kyle McClellan. With all these choices, managers have less of a need to stick with any one guy. Whereas five years ago, it might take a struggling closer five, maybe six blown saves before losing his job, today's managers might wait only two or three before making a change. When it comes to pitchers like Rodney and Fuentes and Caps, there's another element in play. Experience. When managers are faced with multiple choices, the path of least resistance can often be any pitcher who has succeeded in the role before, regardless of skill. That's why Rafael Soriano, Brad Lidge, and Francisco Cordero were natural picks to backfill fantasy bullpens. And as ridiculous as it may seem, it also means you can never count out guys like Kevin Gregg, Kerry Wood, and Latroy Hawkins from backing into a handful of saves. And, if truth be told, 
We can't exactly hold up Rodney, Fuentes, and Caps, and even Aceves and Perez, as testaments to the non-skilled closer. All five have displayed high skill levels at some point in the past, so when managers tab them as their ninth-inning guy, there is some historical justification for those being sound analytical decisions. But when it comes to sound analysis, sometimes external factors enter into the decision as to who will be the closer. For instance, big contracts. No matter how lousy Heath Bell is performing, the Marlins are going to give him many, many, many opportunities to fail. Similarly, it would probably take a month's worth of blown saves to push Jonathan Papelbon out of ninth innings in Philadelphia. And finally, there will always be those few closer appointments that defy explanation. That has always been the case. Some managers just like hard throwers regardless of results, the thought process being that any fresh arm throwing 97 miles per hour in the ninth inning is going to be tough on hitters. Some managers see something in pitchers that lay people like us might never understand. And I'm convinced that some managers just do things to deliberately tick off fancy leaguers. <laughs> it might not be true, but the possibility helps me sleep at night. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday at BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about how fixed-price free agents are affecting tactics in the Roto 500 format. Ron also has a weekly chat every Wednesday at 11 o'clock Eastern at usatoday.com and discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also brings his master notes here to Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of May the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 18 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. And remember to tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and give us those five-star ratings that we really love to get. I also want to thank our guest today, starting with Steve Gardner, the fantasy editor at USA Today and usatoday.com. Steve's one of the good guys in this business and always fun and informative to talk with. Also, thanks to our regular lineup from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon, and our Master Notes commentator, as always, was BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some terrific features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Stephen Nickrand's Starting Pitching Buyer's Guide looks at changes in fastball velocity. We talked a little bit about that on today's show. Doug Dennis's Bullpen Buyer's Guide looks at all the closers who've been biting the dust. And Phil Hertz has a column on trade negotiations and specifically asks whether you know your BATNA. You have to read more to find out what that is. Plus our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday. This week I wrote about possible overachievers and underachievers. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. You can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, Baseball HQ Radio. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.